Chu, velké fosilky. Dávám málo k zemi, ostatní zjišťují slashemi. Ostalashemi nemostá adexity, ostatní adexity sofes donce zjišťují severe. Chá kanlengery, češi stonce severe. Zjišťují stonce ralos, dá kanlengery. Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road the way a ways is William Annis. Hey. And over in New Mexico, we have William Croft. Hi. Uh, William Croft, uh, we're going to call him Bill and our own William Will to, to keep them straight. But uh, William Croft is Professor Emeritus in Linguistics at the University of New Mexico. Uh, just recently emeritus, right? Yeah, in January. Yeah. Um, so if uh, for listeners who might not know, Professor Emeritus is what you the title that you get when you Stop quote unquote teaching. retire. Yeah, when you <laughs> supposedly when you retire, but professors just like kind of keep on working forever anyway. Uh, the uh, and uh, we have him on here to talk a little bit about word classes and in particular about um, about the theory that he promotes that's called radical construction grammar and what that says about word classes, which we'll get to in just a second. Before getting into that, this show is entirely supported by our patrons over at Patreon. If you want to support the show, throw us a few bucks you can go on there and pledge a certain amount for every uh, monthly episode. And, uh, uh, you know, right now I am uh, I'm just about to start a second job. I'm working. Uh, I'm working. The more we could get uh, in the Patreon, the more time I could I can justify working with Hong Kong Langery every month because, uh, you know, I have a family. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, getting back to the topic at hand, William, you actually suggested us getting getting Bill on, right? Because of yeah. you, you saw his stuff. And I think we're going to actually follow your notes mainly because you have sort of a structure uh, involved in the show. Um, okay. Yeah, so we can, um, we can get that. Uh, get some things sorted there. So, uh, why don't you start asking Bill the questions and getting getting us into the into the thick of it? Sure. So, um, most of the listeners have probably seen the Conlanger's Thesaurus that I came up with, and when I was looking at and for things on using uh, semantic maps to think about uh, grammar and meaning. Uh, I ran across some of Bill's work, and I also saw this marvelous way he has of laying out word class things that we're going to talk about today that I think presents some really interesting um, and useful things to think about when constructing a language and even thinking about language. It's really easy for us to get trapped um, by the grammatical terminology that we're used to. And this can lead to confusion, and hopefully after today we can clear up some of that confusion. And even we did this ourselves. Um, we did a, a, 
a conlangery episode back in 2012 uh, called Getting Rid of Adjectives. Um, and so we got rid of things that looked like adjectives in European languages, but our confusion about form versus function um, makes sound it makes it sound like you're doing something really exotic when you get rid of adjectives, but you're not really because <laughs> the functions are still there. So this is what, what's great about this, uh, this chart that Bill has. So we're going to have to start talking a little bit about construction grammar. And, and Bill, do you have a, <laughs> a very brief overview to help people understand the difference between construction grammar and the, uh, like the generative and, and structural linguistics most people are probably familiar with? Yes. Um, so construction grammar, the modern version of it, can probably best be characterized in terms of two two main ways. One is uh, that constructions are a pairing of form and meaning. And so when you think about a construction like the relative clause construction, which um, has been described as a proposition modifying a referent, so uh, the boy who was first in the class, the referent is the boy, and who was first in the class describes is a relative clause that describes the boy. So when we think of that, that corresponds to a traditional grammar notion of a construction. You've got a complex structure with a noun and then a modifying clause, which has a relative pronoun, who, and so on and so forth. Um, and then we think of that as being paired with this meaning, this idea of a, basically in this case, being the best in the class is a predicated concept or a concept that's actually being used to modify the boy. Um, so the construction in traditional grammar is this pairing of form and function. And in modern construction grammar, there's an emphasis on the fact that this is a conventional pairing of form and, con and function. So if you're learning English, you want to know how to make some kind of propositional concept modify um, an, a person or some kind of object concept, then you have to use that structure. That's the conventional way that English speakers use, uh, do it. But in modern construction grammar, they've extended this notion, or we have extended this notion, to include basically any pairing of form and meaning. So we all know that words are treated as pairings of form and meaning, and the morphemes that make up words, prefixes and suffixes and roots, are also pairings of form and meaning. So the thing that makes construction grammar distinctive is that essentially everything is a pairing of form and meaning. Sometimes they're what I call atomic. They're just simple single morphemes or words. Sometimes they're complex, like a relative clause. And they also vary in their degree of idiosyncrasy and their uh, specificity. So there's a, a famous construction uh, called the uh, comparative conditional, where you can say something like, the more you eat, the sooner you'll get sick. Um, and you can basically use that to construct any kind of uh, condition that is on a degree, like the amount you eat, that then is causally linked to another um, property that comes in degrees, like getting sick. Uh, but you also have more specialized constructions, like the bigger they come, the harder they fall, the more the merrier, which are in the same form, so we would call them comparative conditionals, but clearly those are both idioms that uh, English speakers know or conventionalize. Um, so the other thing that characterizes construction grammar after the first two principles, one is that it's a pairing of form and meaning, and second, it's any kind of pairing of form and meaning from simple words to complex syntactic structures. And then the third thing is that constructions come in de different degrees of specificity, 
and uh, many construction grammarians organizes in some kind of taxonomic or hierarchy, or at least some kind of taxonomy taxonomy of more general and more specific constructions. Mm-hmm. So that's basically construction grammar. Uh, as you know, my perspective is from typology, from looking at cross-linguistic diversity and variation and patterns in that variation. Um, so maybe you want me to go on from there, or you have some questions in that direction. Uh, no, I just want to pause and, and to talk a little bit more about constructions briefly. Um, sure. Just all of the things we think of as happening to words can happen to constructions. So things like polysemy. Constructions might have multiple meanings. That's um, right. Um, constructions sort of like you know, wander through semantic space the same way words do over time. That's right, too. So, and, and so these are things I want, you know, language inventors to think about a little bit. Um, yeah. Is, is once you've decided that all parts of your grammar are constructions, um, which I, I'm sympathetic to in general, um, then you have lots of places for interesting historical change and for a semantic play. Um, yeah. George, do you have any other questions that we can move on briefly uh, to the typology uh, side of things? I was just want to go on and make a quick statement just to contextualize it even more. Like, so the, the, the key thing here is like everything is a construction that includes like high level sentence structure down, down to pluralizing nouns, uh, is all, that's all the same thing. And it's all form and meaning that's different from like the more like the generative grammar definitely sort of divorces at the on syntax they like form and meaning and tries to build these abstract hierarchical structures and what one thing that i think is useful about uh uh bill's approach and construction grammar in general is like for conlangers that like those abstract structures don't really help because it doesn't really it 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 breaks away all the options too much. Whereas the constructions help you see things more on the surface level and what different things you can do with your language, which is definitely something that conlangers are interested in because they want to have, like, be creative about these things. Okay, so now we can move on briefly to typology. Yeah. Yeah, so this brings in the the issue of what is the relationship between constructions and the... Uh, grammatical categories like the word classes, noun, verb, and adjective. Um, and I guess you've talked about this in my earlier podcast, like your one about adjectives, and you were talking about, you know, saying some languages don't have adjectives, but you still have the functions that have to be expressed. So a lot of that depends on how you define the term adjective. But the thing I want to focus on is that languages do vary a lot. That is, human languages, not the, and I would say also invented languages should if you want to try to um, put your languages in the, the wide space of actual human languages, um, there's a tremendous amount of variation and people basically don't know how to handle it. So the problem is we all think we know what an adjective is in English. The question is what happens when you go to another language? Now you go to a European language like French or Spanish or Russian. They all have adjectives, but that's partly because they're all working in the same Western grammatical tradition of grammatical description. Mm-hmm. It gets more problematic when you move to uh, languages in other continents, either 
languages in cultures which have their own written and grammatical tradition like uh, Japan or to indigenous languages that are not written and don't have a tradition of grammatical description. And then what you have to ask yourself is, how do these languages, uh, in what ways are they similar to English? In what ways are they different? And the way typologists tend to look at this is when you're talking about something like adjectives, you look at the function from one language to the next. So semantically, adjectives express property concepts like big or tall or good. But there's another dimension to this, which is plays a big role in my own uh, research that uh, Will mentioned earlier, which is in addition to the semantics, the property concepts, uh, you also have to think about how that information and that semantic content is being presented to the the, the hearer, um, or as I now call it, how much how it's um, packaged. And with a case of things like property concepts, the most common packagings that you see is as predication. So you say something like uh, that that play was good, um, or you use it as a modifier. So you'll say um, I saw a good play last night. Mm-hmm. And so those are both the same concepts, something, you know, some kind of qual- um, evaluative concept, but it's presented in different ways. It's asserted in the case of that play is good, and it's helped to pick out or characterize um, a particular referent when you say, I saw a good play last night. Mm-hmm. So then you ask yourself, well, what's going on in other languages? Well, they do. They all have property concepts. They all have ways to predicate those property concepts. And they all have ways to use those property concepts as modifiers. But how they do it grammatically varies uh, dramatically. And in some languages, this, uh, the, this is going to be the, the variation is in the, well, like the morphosyntax. So the actual words that are put together and how they, uh, any kind of inflections that are associated with them. So in English, we say, you know, uh, that play was good. So we use this copula, was. So it's a separate word from good. Uh, it's inflected. So it, in that case, it was past tense, third person singular. But in other languages, you don't have a copula. And you might even inflect the word for good, uh, just like you would or sort of like you would what we call a verb, which would be a kind of action concept that is uh, predicated. And so the term that linguists, typologists have used for a long time, it goes all the way back at least to the 1970s with classic work by typologists such as Bernard Comrie and Tommy Givon. The, the word they use to describe the different kinds of forms is a strategy. So you'll say English uses an inflected copula strategy for predicating property concepts. So that sentence combines form so inflected copula strategy and function predicating property concepts. And I would say for anybody analyzing language or inventing a language, you should think about that function and um, the forms that it expresses. And then the second thing that I think is very important is that when you think about function, that you think about both the semantic content that your sentence expresses and then how that semantic content is being packaged or presented in the uh, discourse context, like predication versus modification in this case. And so all those things should be thought about um, whether you are writing a grammar of an undocumented language, an unwritten language, or whether you're inventing a language. Because in both cases, you have to think about what are the range of things 
that people want to express and how they're going to package that information. And then either as a field linguist, you're trying to figure out how does the speech community do that. And as a conlanger, you're going to think about, about how do I want my language to do that? Mm-hmm. Right. Which which will involve also looking at some real languages because uh, all of us draw inspiration from real languages and it will help us to think about those languages in this way. Um, the, the I find interesting, and this maybe it's, it's just because of the way that like I was trained and, and such, but um, I find it interesting you use terms like action uh, words and, and property words, which is something like some of the like the the generative tradition kind of shies away from and tries to define word classes without the semantic like role that they do and more just on formal like what do they do in a sentence and i think that sometimes that can be an overcorrection it's good to actually think think about okay adjectives the core of adjectives at least express properties and you have a lot of these different ways that you could you could express properties. The that it's not necessarily gonna look. It's ne- definitely not going. It's definitely we can we can cite languages that don't look like they don't they have property words that don't look like traditional adjectives in European tradition, but they they have the same semantic function definitely. And and one thing I also want to mention that just like pop linguistics and sometimes even conlangers, I think, get tripped up on the distinction between form and function. So we get people saying things like, love is a verb, as though, you know, verb means some platonic thing about how the world works rather than simply an organizing structure for communication. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or... Um, when we get conlangers who want to create a language without verbs or nouns, people do that, and they come up with all sorts of clever ways to do this. But all they've done is removed a particular form that we're familiar with, like things that conjugate, for example, and just come up with other ways to reproduce the functions that just in a way that's that's a little bit different. Um, so, uh, Or you get big arguments over things like classical Nahuatl, which we're going to talk about a little bit about more, or some of the marvelous languages of the Pacific Northwest, it's like, oh, they don't have, everything's a verb. Well, sort of. That, that, that confuses people who are used to thinking about verbs as some sort of platonic ideal rather than just a, a particular structure to do something. And that's the, I think that's, that can sort of lead us into a different uh, part of this conversation because reading uh, what what you do, Bill, with the radical construction grammar, it sort of seems like if you're thinking about an, an idea of, oh, I want a conlang without verbs, um, or you're, you're, you're even thinking about these word classes in the first place in terms of verbs, nouns, adjectives, you're kind of putting the heart, cart before the horse. Because it seems to me that what you sort of aim to do is start with constructions. And you've mentioned, like, you know, property words tend to have some kind of predication construction and some sort of modifying construction that they participate in. And you seem to be like, let's let's look at the, the constructions 
and see what these constructions are doing and what words participate in them. And then that helps us make our word classes, right? Yeah. And, um, but notice that when I made my description there about a sentence like that play was good and said it was uh, inflecting copula strategy for a property predication, I did not use the word adjective. Right. Um, and that's a description of English. It's a description of English that does not use the word adjective. But my main interest, of course, is looking at it across the world's languages. And, you know, I've been working on this particular topic basically for my whole career. The, and it started out as an analysis of uh, noun, verb, and adjective cross-linguistically, and then has evolved into basically a full-blown theory of grammatical structure and function. And so I've had a lot of time to debate this with generative linguists and also non-generative linguists who find what I do a bit too radical. And mm -hmm. sometimes I get frustrated. So, for instance, when I teach typology or have taught typology here at UNM, I've sometimes told my students that noun and verb are four-letter words. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I've also tried to figure out, well, what is it that people are actually using uh, a word like noun, verb, or adjective to describe when they say of a particular language, this language, you know, has no adjectives, or this language, uh, in this language, adjectives are verbs. Because to me... I mean, because I've been thinking this other way for so so long, to say a language has no adjectives um, doesn't seem to make sense to me because every language has property concepts as well as ways to predicate them and use them as modifiers. And to right. say the language, in some language, adjectives are verbs sounds like it's nonsensical. Are you saying that modifiers are predications? Are you saying that property concepts are action concepts? You know, both of those are nonsensical statements. Um, so I've had to deal with this because I'm currently working on a textbook on morphosyntax, which you could think of as applied radical construction grammar. Uh, the subtitle is Constructions of the World's Languages. And it's basically a survey of constructions in the world's languages, um, essentially summarizing a lot of the major results of typology in the last 50 plus years. Um, and so I've had to, you know, this is for teaching to undergraduates and master's level students and for that matter phd level students and i have to try to deal with it because these guys these students they're all reading grammars of indigenous languages that's part of what they have to do in the class um and they see people say you know they see the grammar writers say things like this language has no adjectives or in this language adjectives are verbs so i have to ask myself well what are these people really saying that is the authors and explain this to the students and you can see I mean, this is a book that will eventually get published by Cambridge University Press if I ever finish the thing. Uh, but I did put the top first two chapters on my website, and anybody can download them. So what I'm telling you now is stuff I talk about in chapter one. So well, when people do use the word adjective, and they say a language doesn't have adjectives or adjectives are verbs. What they're saying is that the constructional strategy for predicating property concepts is not the same as the constructional strategy used in most European languages. Mm. And in most European languages, it's an inflecting copula. You know, the play was good. So if they see something where there's no copula, it just looks like the play good, or the play goods, you know, inflected, where the word good is inflected, then they say, oh, this, doesn't, this isn't an adjective. And what they mean is it's not the strategy that's used by most Western European languages, or English anyway, 
uh, for property concept predication. And if they say adjectives are verbs, they're saying not only does it not look like the strategy that English uses for property predication, but it does look like the strategy that English or even that other language uses for action predication, your prototypical verb. Yeah. Uh, and so the question then comes, well, what should we use the term adjective for? Should we use the term adjective to describe just the way Western European languages grammatically express the predication of properties? And my gut feeling, you know, as a linguist, as a theoretical linguist, thinking about, you know, how often these terms are used is, is no, that, that's not really right. Because then otherwise you'd have to drop these terms like adjective and noun and verb, you know, from your descriptions of languages, you know, of, you know, 90% maybe, or at least, you know, 50% or percent of the languages of the world. And then you'd have to come up with new terms for that. Um, so the solution that I adopted in my early work all the way to the present, so I actually don't discard the terms noun, verb, and adjective, um, is to treat that an adjective as describing a property concept. Now, in the case of adjectives specifically, a property concept used as a modifier. And then verb is an action concept that's predicated, like the, the boys ran down the street. So ran is an action that's predicated of the boys. Uh, and then a noun is a object concept for a person or a thing uh, that is being referred to in the sentence, like the boys and the boys ran down the street. Right. Um, so that means, in that sense, all languages have nouns, verbs, and adjectives. But, you know, the thing that's important here is defining your terms carefully. So in the definitions that I offer, yeah, all languages have nouns, verbs, and adjectives. If you wanted to say the term adjective means predicating a property concept using an inflected copula, then, yeah, lots of English languages don't have adjectives. Um, but that means you've defined your term adjective to describe a particular constructional form yeah. that expresses the function. Right. And is that even a useful way to define adjective? I, I'm guessing that you don't really think it is. No, because that would mean essentially ruling out that term for lots and lots of languages in the world. Right. And I suppose some people at some level have done that, uh, the ones that say that lots of languages don't have adjectives. But then you have to decide what they do have. And then you get people coining special terms like state of verb or, you know, property verb or something yeah. like that. Um, or, you know, uh, adjectival nominal or nominal adjective or something like that. They're trying to use the term to capture the, the, the grammatical structure as well as the function. Um, and I actually think it's quite important to distinguish uh, terms to describe grammatical form from those that describe function. You said earlier on that pop linguists and maybe even, you know, well, certainly students, undergrads who are learning linguistics, you know, sometimes confuse the terms. But I would say that actually a lot of, you know, linguistics professors with PhDs who have been in the field for a long time, in my opinion, are conflating formal and functional concepts in many cases when they use a term like noun or adjective. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's this recent movement in typology. I don't know if you've had anybody on your podcasts. Um, there's a, con a, a term, It's again, it's an idea that's been around in typology for decades, but is only recently given a name by the, uh, the typologist uh, Martin Haspelmatt, and that is a comparative concept. And his point was we need to develop and carefully define concepts, you know, theoretical concepts that we can use to describe 
all you know it, it, to describe those concepts and or those theoretical things in all languages of the world, not something that's specific to English or Western European. Um, and that I've kind of taken that term with a vengeance and used it. And I argue that you need comparative concepts for semantics. You need comparative concepts for the information packaging, like predication and modification. And you need comparative concepts to describe constructional form. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to describe form uh, that's not specific to a particular language. So when I say inflecting copula, for instance, like English was and the play was good, you can define an inflecting copula that's not based on English categories. You can say it's a third morpheme beyond the subject play and the predicate good. It's a third morpheme. And this third morpheme is inflected for some of the cat, or at least some of the categories that are found in action predication. So in English, third singular past tense are found in action predication, and they're also found on this inflected copula. You go to another language, maybe they don't have tense marking. So then your copula will not have past tense, for instance, but it might still have third singular marking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can do. You can construct a definition of linguistic form without it being tied to the specific facts about English or Western European languages or any particular language. Yeah. And that was, that was really Martin Hasselmatt's insight, because if you look at my work and a lot of other work by earlier typologists, we've all kind of assumed that the only way you can really compare languages from, uh, compare grammatical constructions from one language to the next is solely through function. But he made the point... And I, you know, agree with him that there are ways to describe properties of linguistic form um, across languages. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a, a sort of a thought about like a, a concrete example that was, was sort of where I would try to, 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 to get at it. Maybe maybe I can try this on you and see if I'm I'm doing your theory right. Um, sure. But uh, so the, and I and. Your discussion right now has helped me sort it out. So, like, um, uh, I'm very familiar with Mandarin Chinese, and it is one of the languages that people will say, like, the adjectives are verbs or they're state of verbs or whatever like that. And so thinking to me, like, the they, they are much more similar to, to the verbs than English adjectives are the verbs because of the the way the constructions work but i think you can still find differences that would not be the same as the differences you the as the way that the constructions shake out in english but so the describing it in your language the property predication construction in mandarin yeah. uh in a statement it actually it requires a degree adverb. By default, it's hen, meaning very. But the, you have yeah. to have a degree adverb. Whereas with action, uh, the the action predication, you aren't required to have a, a degree adverb. So there is a difference there between what we might call adjectives and what we might call verbs. It's just not the same difference that you see in English. So that's not to say that you couldn't have a language that they are both the same and I'm sure we can we can find some examples where they seem to be like totally the same but I think your way, approach can get people more thinking about like okay like this is what this function of this construction is in this language it doesn't look like what european languages do but for the same meaning 
but it has its meaning and we have these words that participate in it and then we can define similar categories maybe not exactly the same based on like what participates in what functional like categories of constructions right yeah so the mandarin case is pretty interesting in in, in a number of ways so yeah, there's been this debate about does Mandarin have, quote, adjectives or not? And what that really means is does it use a grammatical construction for property predication that's either more similar to English or at least different from the Mandarin construction for action predication? And the use of the intensifier as the kind of default form in property predication is essentially a historical process, a recent historical process in Mandarin, also mm-hmm. in Cantonese with a, right. a morphine that's not the same, uh, where it really did once mean very, and it still does mean very in appropriate contexts, but it's also kind of, so to speak, been bleached and now has come to be used with um, in the ordinary predication where you say she is tall and you use the word that means very, but you're not saying she's very tall. You're just, she's just normally tall. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> And um, so then you, but then you can ask yourself the question in a kind of framework like I just described is, can we call this word a copula? Or we certainly can't call it an inflecting copula because, well, first, for one thing, uh, action predication in Chinese doesn't have inflections. So you're not going to be able to find that. So is it a copula form that's an uninflected copula? Another category you can define cross-linguistically or another construction you can Define cross linguistically, and I would say the answer is basically yes. It isn't. It is a if you follow the cross linguistic definition of a third morpheme that doesn't have any inflections on it, then yeah, it's an uninflected copula. So that makes it look more like well, not really like English because English has an inflected copula, but it also has this other interesting thing, which is that um, you know adjectives or property concepts have attracted a lot of attention in typology, and as far as I know. I don't know of any other cases except uh, Mandarin and you know Cantonese and probably other uh, Chinese varieties where, where an intensifier has become the uninflected copula. There's right. a, ma- a massive work by this great typologist from the Netherlands named Leon Stassen on intransitive predication. And ma- it's one of the masterpieces of typological research where he looked at the predication of object concepts, property concepts, and action concepts, and locations also, looking at over like 400 languages and looking at a lot of interesting uh, diachronic pathways of change. And he doesn't mention that as a typical source or a common source of uninflected copulas. They usually come from pronouns, demonstratives, or third-person singular pronouns. So that, in that sense... What's happening now, you know, in recent times in Mandarin and Cantonese is pretty unique or pretty unusual. And that's something to think about, you know, with uh, inventing languages is because, you know, what I'm trying to say is that anybody who wants to invent a language had better come up with a construction for predication of properties and properties as modifiers in order to make sure that their invented language has the same kind of general purpose uh, communication functions that ordinary human languages have but then when you ask what forms to use there's lots of different op- options out there even just to reflect what um human languages have been observed to do um and some of them are very rare like what happens in mandarin some of them are quite common so the languages where property concepts are inflected with aspect and 
uh, subject, you know, person and number and gender and so on, a modality. Uh, that's that's pretty common in the world's languages. It's certainly something a conlanger should think about when they're, you know, inventing constructions for property concepts. Um, but there's a lot of possibilities out there, and some of them are pretty rare uh, and, so, uh, and unusual. And even if they come up in a, a widely spoken language like Mandarin. Yeah, and you could even, you know, possibly if you can work out like a plausible historical source, just kind of just come up with something on your own and and have it be like, well, I have I have an explanation and this is just how property concepts ended up working in this language. And, you know, if you have a, a, a plausible story behind it, it should should be naturalistic enough. <laughs> yeah. And I should say, so I told you I've been working on this textbook and morphosyntax, and although the starting point was, of course, my analysis of word classes that goes all the way back to my doctoral research, um, you get a new view of things when you look, you try to do something which is a all-encompassing, you know, textbook-like survey of all the construction that, and the functions that they express. So that's something that's also important in inventing languages is having some idea of what the breadth and scope of constructions there are in the world's languages that, you know, merit uh, inventing. Uh, right. But then you also see a number of things. So one thing that, you know, sort of in hindsight is kind of obvious, and, and that is that, you know, all semantic content is packaged in different ways. When I talk about property concepts being predicated or used as modifiers, and you can also refer to them as it, like with the word goodness, um, that's only one set of ways to package information. And basically, all constructions that you see if you re you read a grammatical description and you want to, you know, crib off of it to invent a language, all of those grammatical constructions involve both information content, semantic content, and information and, and packaging of that information content. And then the second thing you see when you look around the world's languages in, from a cross linguistic perspective, and you ask yourselves about, you know. You want to explain why Mandarin is the way it is, or English is the way it is. And the explanations are almost always historical, so that the Mandarin construction originated with some kind of degree modifier, like very. And then what you see is the main thing that languages, that people, speakers, want to do when they want to express some kind of complex function is they simply recruit a construction from some... Uh, conceptually neighboring function. That's why you have these semantic maps, and you can have semantic maps for constructional meaning as well as for word meaning. Um, the semantic maps basically are giving you an indication of which word you're likely to recruit for this new meaning, or which construction are you likely to recruit for this complex function, like property predication. And then once the construction gets recruited, then it starts, you know, taking a life of it, taking on a life of its own, and develop some grammatical idiosyncrasies and then no longer looks like the construction it was recruited from. Um, but that's really the main way that languages come up with constructions. And so that means people, conlangers, that's also a great way to come up with new constructions. You don't have to create a novel new construction for every single <laughs> function that existed. Uh, you'd never finish, for one thing. Right. Just pick, you know, just recruit them and try to find patterns you know, what we know about the way human, regular human languages do it in terms of where you recruit something from. But you can also be a little creative and do, do something more unusual, like, you know, the Mandarin intensifier for a copula. Two years yeah. ago, 
at the uh, language creation conference, I did give a talk on using construction grammar as a creative tool, and I my ending statement was reduce, reuse, recycle. Namely, That's right. Like, yes, just pull these things in. So you give a, an interesting example in one of your chapters of the the using better in English as kind of a weird sort of obligation modal, like um, you better talk to him. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of shows you that looking at things in terms of word classes is not really the best way to look at it because we would think, oh, well, how could better? Better is the comparative form of an adjective. You know, she's better at, at poker than he is. But here it's being used like it's an auxiliary. And, well, you know, how did that happen? Well, I give the story, you know, looking at people like Elizabeth Traugott and her, or David Dennison, their research on the history of English constructions. But, yeah, you whatever happened, it's not like, like speakers of English said, oh, I can't do this. Better is in a comparative adjective. I can't put it in the auxiliary slot. Um, they just did it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was no. combined with an auxiliary. That's how it got there. But they dropped the auxiliary and the world didn't come, come to an end. Yeah. You had better, which some people yeah. still say, and then you better. Yeah. yeah. So, that, and that's 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 another thing of how things can, can uh, move in different directions um i've been I, I i've been thinking about applying this to to conlanging a little bit too in terms of like i have a conlang that i need to sort of get back to but like, like one of the things is like it has like two different classes of prepositions that one came from verbs and one came from nouns and Not now that Chinese again <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think most. I think most. I think uh, almost all the prepositions in Chinese are from verbs, though, aren't they? But um, yeah, I think that there was an, some inspiration there. But I was thinking. Of, I've thought about like I've got to like rethink these and rethink what constructions they participate in because the ones that are verb-like uh, in more morphologically. They probably came from verbs, and we need to think about, are they participating in some of the same constructions that verbs are? And then the noun-like ones, are they acting like nouns in certain ways that would like that would distinguish those classes even further in interesting ways? So, like, yeah, that's, 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 that's bridging into, like, the construction thing is, like, now don't think of just, like, saying, okay... This is how nouns work. This is how adjectives work. This is how uh, verbs work. But actually thinking about like different like members of your classes and what constructions you um, they participate in. And you talked about, about in one of your papers talking about like there's you you have sort of an idea of like these this these these categories are not Cartesian like strictly defined with with bright lines between them but they they have sort of a, a map the the like a network effect to them and there's some that you could say are like core adjectives things like a good big small that are definitely like going to behave mostly in like the same kinds of constructions and then you have things that are on the periphery that might participate in other things so that you end up with like you know things do cross lines a lot in in language yeah definitely and you know with you take something like i mean one of the things i say and uh, i think it's in the first chapter of the new 
with a morphosyntax book in preparation is that speakers are very liberal about recruiting a construction for a new function, but they're very conservative about changing that form that they have recruited. So even though that form is kind of, so to speak, designed for whatever its original function was, they still keep stuff around, you know, bits of grammar um, that aren't really pertinent to the new function. Um, and it takes a while for those things to get, you know, eroded away. So, yeah, you should definitely not, but, but you shouldn't underestimate people's, you know, natural language speakers' kind of liberality or flexibility in recruiting constructions for new functions and think about that too. I mean, it'd be worthwhile to think, have people, conlangers, think about their languages dynamically, not just as a, a set of, a system of rules and, and, and uh, a, a lexicon for that reason. Yeah, I think a lot of us, even though I've been like reading your work and other construction grammar work now for, for quite a few years, I still, it's very easy for me to fall back into the sort of older or we'll say generative model, but it predates, you know, the generativists of yeah. there's, there's vocabulary, there's meaning, and then there's structure as entirely different things. Whereas, you know, as I create languages, I don't, I try very hard to avoid thinking like that. You know, structure has meaning as well, because it's a construction, it's arranging how things go and there's meaning there. But it is very easy. And I think beginning conlangers, people who aren't used to thinking about language deeply, which everyone learns eventually if they stay with the hobby, is getting stuck on or getting tripping over form and function as being identical somehow. Or then this happens even some of us say, well, I want my dative case to do this. Is this okay? Well, of course it's okay. <laughs> Look at all of the different things, datives across different languages, things that get called datives can do. Yeah. I mean, there are patterns there, and that's what's the great thing about the semantic map model is you can like encompass the generality of all of this quite different, very diverse actual language data we have, but also show interesting patterns that keep popping up all over the place. Yeah. So with your thesaurus that uh, you showed me that, that you said a lot of conlangers are familiar with, that's mostly focused on the lexicon. And yep. interestingly, there's been less done typologically with the lexicon. Um, you know, the most recent thing which you cited an earlier version of is this Clicks database, C-L-I-C-S. Oh, I love that, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, it's a massive amount of um, data that they've pulled together. Um, it isn't, you know, kind of controlled in the sense that it's it's opportunistic what languages they, they did. I did a smaller, a much, much, much smaller project where I tried to be very careful about sampling so that when I say, I could say that two, you know, two concepts that they are expressed by the same word in, you know, 15% of the languages, that that, that 15% is a really good number. It's not yeah. biased by the languages I sampled. Um, but yeah, when it comes to grammatical typology, there is actually also an enormous amount of work that's been done. I mean, obviously, it would be a huge amount of work for any conlanger to try to master the typological literature, but that's the whole point of my textbook is to try to summarize that in the most important for the most important constructions. I mean, obviously, you can't describe every construction because, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, uh, constructions come in different degrees of specificity. So... A textbook like the one I'm writing, and which is, I like to think of as a, it's a more coherent and highly, more highly structured one than some of these surveys that do exist already. Um, but it does try to do a, the broad brush view of all the constructions that 
or the, the range of functions that you really need to capture if you want to have something that starts to look like a general purpose communication system. Um, so I hope that would be an interesting resource. Um, and, you know, there's quite a few semantic maps in that book for grammatical constructions and lots of talk about which constructions get recruited for new functions. Right. I've often, well, not, I mean, I've certainly thought it'd be nice to have something like clicks, but for more complex constructions than just words, but I'm not sure how you would do that. That would be hard to think about. Um, well, it would be hard to, to construct. <laughs> yeah, it'd be hard to construct because it would be, because just the function part of it would be, you know, a higher dimensional yeah. structure. So yeah, and plotting it on a two-dimensional screen or display um, is hard. And even uh, clicks has some pretty cool graphics uh, on it so that you can at least go beyond two dimensions, but you can't really get into like four, five, or six right, dimensions, which right. is probably really neat. And I mean, construction grammar is somewhat young. I mean, do we have a really good, strong list of all the the constructions that we observe? Um, um, we have, I mean, we've been using constructions in one way or another for a long time. We have some ideas, but um, this is kind of a different way of thinking about them, too. Yeah, so to do that, you really need to think about, uh, first, about the range of functions. And there, the chief inspiration that I've taken is from the work of, uh, of uh, Wally Chafe, the, who sadly passed away in January of this year, uh, who's done... So it's great research on verbalization starting back in the 70s and even earlier than that. He's probably one of the best linguists uh, to think about how a function gets expressed into form. And I you know, referred you earlier to, uh, like earlier a week ago, to the grammar or the, the article that I wrote called The Origins of Grammar and the Verbalization of Experience, where oh, I yeah. take Chafe's model and expand it to cover the kind of functions of grammar, uh, his focus more on how lexical concepts are packaged. So it's much, it's pretty close to the kind of same ideas that I had uh, later, of course. He, he came up with these ideas originally in the 70s uh, about the noun, verb, and, and adjective, and reference, and predication, and modification functions. Um, but it's really the place you have to start, start doing it. And I think that the information packaging is really valuable because it's like when we think about semantic concepts, well, it's like it seems like there's an infinite array of them, lots of rich, fine-grained distinctions, a lot of cultural specificity. Um, but when it comes to these information packaging functions, I think there's a smaller number of it. It's probably motivated by the principles that Chafe has identified on, in terms of how do you verbalize experience, and it's probably more... I guess I'd say more universal. I mean, it's there's still all sorts of messy stuff there, messy, interesting, messy stuff. But it's probably a better starting point to think about the the more limited ways you can package information as opposed to the incredibly diverse and wide-ranging, infinite, seemingly infinite array of types of information that you want to package. So I think that's a you can't just be a sort of typologist looking around at constructions and seeing what the grammatical forms are, you also have to think in terms of you know, what a functionalist linguist is, what kind of uh, you know, semantic content people want to express, and then how do they package that. And then if you think in that way, the, you know, from experience into words or forms, then you can start getting a handle on uh, the range of constructions you need to 
um, either describe in a, a document in an undocumented language or invent in a if you're conlanging. So let's move on to this three by three grid because I think this is it's not the same quite as a semantic map, but it has some properties of a semantic map that are useful for conlangers to think about to just get new ideas. So across the top we have propositional acts. Is it referring, is it modifying, or is it predicating? Yeah, those are the so those I call them propositional acts for the because that's the term that uh, the lingua, the philosopher John Searle introdu- introduced in a, a book he wrote back in 1969. Uh, and that's just like, like one type of what I'm now calling information packaging, because I now see that it's it's uh, basically everywhere in, in grammar. And for these core parts of speech, noun, verb, and adjective, you really have to look at it in terms of this, both the content, which is object concepts, property concepts, action concepts, and these information packaging, reference, predication, and modification. So then, yeah, you can create this three-by-three cell. Um, So the two things to note about this three-by-three cell, I'm afraid, I guess, your listeners are going to have to try to visualize this. So the the columns, as you said, were reference, modification, and predication. The rows were objects, properties, and actions. So if you think of that, and if you recall what I said earlier in the podcast that nouns cross linguistically are best defined as whatever, however you refer to object concepts and adjectives are however you use property concepts or modification and verbs are, are how you use action con- or how you predicate action concepts. So those combinations of semantic class and propositional act function those create a diagonal from the upper left to the upper, lower right. So reference to objects, properties as modifiers, and predication of actions. So that's the first point. So those are like the, your basic constructions. And if you're designing a language or documenting a language, you would expect those to be your canonical constructions that we would call uh, noun phrases, predicates for verbs, and uh, modifiers or attributive constructions. And uh, those tend to be grammatically simpler, but richer in inflections, uh, and also the most frequent in discourse. But the other point is that should not be forgotten is that the that's only three cells of this three-by-three three yep. table. There's six other cells. And the crucial thing that's kind of interesting from a, uh, you know, just from a psychological point of view or communicative point of view is that all those other six cells can be expressed. So... You can predicate properties. You know, I said that, you know that play was good. You can predicate object concepts. So, uh, you know, that girl is a linguist. You can use object concepts as modifiers, like uh, Sally's bicycle. You can use action concepts as modifiers. So that's the relative clauses, like the uh, uh, deer running across the field. Um, and you can also refer to property concepts, as I mentioned before with derived forms like goodness. And you can also refer to actions. They, these are event nominals like walking or um, complements like infinitival to walk. Um, so anybody who's creating a language or documenting it has to essentially look at all nine cells in this table. They can't just look at the diagonal that represents the prototypical noun, verb, and adjective. And then the other thing about those things on the diagonals is they can 
typically be done the same way. Typically, as they recruit the construction that's in the same column. Yep. Um, so that's when you say things like, you know, adjectives are verbs. That what that really means is the predication of properties recruits the same construction as the predication of actions, the prototypical verbs. Um, or they can have their own distinctive constructions, usually with extra morphemes involved, like the copula. So again, if you're uh, inventing languages and you want to make them look like human languages, you need to have constructions for those other cells. And then those constructions could look just like the ones that are the prototypical constructions on the diagonal in the table. Or you can make them look like more complex versions of those constructions. Uh, and then that would make thing, that would make your language, your invented language, sort of fit somewhere in the space of, uh, you know, attested human languages. Yeah, and you could have more than one possibility because uh, I'm I'm looking at the examples that you have in in the uh, the draft for morphosyntax that you gave, and I think you're trying to illustrate that like the non-canonical ones tend to get like extra things put on. So yeah. uh, for the ob object modification, you used uh, the possessive clinic. You said the bushes thorns. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you can actually in English put like a bare noun as a modifier. Um, let's, uh, what was, what would it be? Um, what's the, I can't think of an like example. Gold ring. Yeah, the gold ring, uh, uh, exactly, and yeah, that's silver, copper, what brass. Yeah. and that's that's a thing. Like English has two different ways that you can you can use an object where it is a modifier, so that you end up with this this uh, we we end up having sort of a bleed through between what's what is a noun and what is an adjective. Uh, but not all languages will do that. Some uh, like you know even even related languages that are in the same area like spanish doesn't doesn't usually allow nouns to a operate in a modification positions like that without some some extra work done so like so uh you, that's that's part of something that we're always doing here is like talking about what your options are and your options i think you already said it but it, it's your options here with the in terms of like the canonical use versus the non-canonical use is like, are you going to make speakers do extra work to make, for example, an object word into modification rather than reference? Or are you going to recruit, as you say, recruit what property words do in modification position and just make them do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. So anytime you're off that diagonal, you can just recruit something from the diagonal, or else you have constructions with extra stuff. Now, you know, these are such fundamental basic constructions, like predication of properties and objects, for example, that's pretty common. I mean, common function that you find in discourse, I mean, not nearly as common as predicating actions, but often enough, common enough that the constructions you have there are specialized, and you see something like a copula, and it's like, not obvious where it came from. It's true, though, that those things were all once recruited from somewhere else. Um, so inflected copulas, Stassen, Leon Stassen, the guy I mentioned earlier, most times those are recruited from um, positional verbs like be located, sit, stand, lie. Mm -hmm. um, and copulas for nouns, object predication, like, you know, that girl is a linguist. Um, those 
if they're uninflected, as I mentioned earlier, they could come from pronouns like that or he or it. So they do have sources. There are some because those constructions are so frequently get grammaticalized, um, and then they diverge from their source constructions. So you can't always tell. But mm. they were all recruited from somewhere. I mean, pretty much, basically everything was recruited from somewhere. It's just that it's so far back in the midst of time, and it's changed so much that you, you have no idea in many cases where they came from. And historical linguists get into big arguments about where they really come from. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there if you look at the right sections of Stassen's book. Uh, so yeah, that's all really it's really cool stuff that you know you don't want to make. I mean, languages are kind of sloppy. They always have alternative constructions, and you know. If you make your invented language too neat, that's probably making it look less like a, a regular yeah. human language. Yeah, uh, And that's so, something we harp on anyway. So. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I just wanted to really draw people's attention to and what excited me most about this 3x3 three three grid, and we have, we're have we going to have links to these chapters and other places where this chart is appearing, so people will be able to look at it, is things in the same column tend to clump constructionally and in just in their behavior, for example, we have this reference function, and we can have very complicated ways to turn actions to to, to have references to actions, clause nominalization for you know, action nominals, all sorts of things, and then you find that very often these action nominals, once they've done that, or even if it's a clause, suddenly they start taking things like case marking or in the example of classical Nahuatl, nominal predicate construction looks a whole lot like verb or, or action uh, predication. You just can't, you know, do tense marking. Um, so there's a tendency, and, and then for modification, you know, there's a reason, I think, that modification, you know, tends to all go on one side or the other side of the, the noun or the, the verb being modified. And there are all sorts of interesting patterns between where your relative clauses go and where your adjectives go. There's just interesting parallels there. Um, and they might have similar or identical uh, constructions for some of these things, at least. So that, that's something, I think, that will really help people in thinking about new kinds of ways to do things in their conlangs that break them out of habits that are familiar to them um, from their, name, their, their native language. And that's why, I, I mean, I've been pushing people to read typology not to become masters of the field, but just to, you know, see a survey of, an, of, of a bunch of ways of, of solving the same functional problem. Yeah, I mean, the, the typology can just use it to open people's minds about, you know, it doesn't have to be done the same way as it's done in English or Western European languages. There's lots of different ways out there. Um, and once people see that, then they can, then it makes it easier to be creative about that. And and sometimes, like when you're reading about uh, about, about typology, you realize that uh, one of the ways that uh, Western European languages do things sometimes might be a little bit weird. Like oh, um, yeah. like uh, uh, I remember it was really interesting to me when I read. I it was just from the Walls chapter on. Um, comparative constructions and it was like European languages are like one of the, the maybe there's a, like a few languages outside of that area that do it but mainly, mainly it's just European languages that will use a specific comparative form of an adjective right yeah that's not that common 
Yeah, it's like it's like a really rare thing. But since we all speak English and European languages sort of dominate, people think it's a common thing. When when as soon as you look at it, it's like nope, it's kind of weird. Doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of the sad things about you know modern language education, including my own, uh, since I was I grew up in in California, went to public schools. You don't get exposed to classical Greek or Latin much anymore unless you go to the right schools or certain private schools. And those languages are typologically extremely different from modern Western European languages. So you'd learn a lot about if you had that training or you know exposure to classical Greek and classical Latin, uh, you know, in grade school, then that that alone would sort of open up your mind. I mean, now people. You're more likely to have your mind opened by studying Japanese, Korean, and Chinese. Yeah, uh, you know, or maybe Arabic or Hindi or Indonesian. I don't know how much any of those languages are are represented in schools, but certainly the East Asian languages have a lot of interesting uh, different ways in which they are typologically quite unlike Western European languages. But even so, that's only. I mean, it, it does open your mind, but there's a lot more mind blowing stuff out there when you start looking at. Languages spoken in small indigenous communities in different parts. Oh, of, the world. of course, yeah. I we we look at those on this podcast. It's, we're just kind of hitting some certain reference points, but yeah, um, yeah. So this this has been a great con- uh, discussion. Um, we're uh, we I think we've been recording for over an hour already. So um, I I do want to mention real quick. I think we we've we've brought this up but i do want to emphasize like your like construction grammar in general also it includes inflection and you've brought up like uh you know predication constructions action predication and um and property predication can have inflection involved but i think it's important to emphasize like this includes even things like pluralizing a noun or um you actually use like comparative forms in one sense to talk about like well we have different comparative comparative form constructions in just one language in, in english and they seem to apply to different categories of adjectives right yeah so the i mean one of the things i since we've been spending a lot of time talking about property concepts is um one thing that's pretty clear from people who've done cross-linguistic research um, looking at not just sort of the most prototypical object concepts, property concepts, action concepts, it's pretty clear that property concepts are really diverse in the kind of constructions they employ. So even in English, you can look at the comparative forms and you have the suppletive forms like good and better and bad and worse. Uh, and then you have the um, regular inflectional forms like taller and shorter and smaller and then you have the paraphrastic forms like more intelligent, more complicated. And just looking at those three different kinds of comparisons, comparative, comparative forms, suppletion, morphological inflection, and periphrasis, you can see the kind of core or prototypical adjectives, less prototypical adjective categories that um, have been observed with other constructions in other languages. So if you hunt in the right places, you can see that. Um, but that's also why I titled the book I'm working on now Morphosyntax, because you're really talking about stuff happening internal to words like inflections. That's 
why it's morphology, and then things that are external relations between words, like which we think of as syntax. And most typologists tend to take the view of, well, you know, these concepts can sometimes be expressed morphologically and sometimes syntactically, so we should be looking at morphosyntax when we want to take a, a global perspective on cross-linguistic variation. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, I could go on for this for a while, but I, I just wanted to get out into the world to Conlangers this this three-by-three three chart and also to think about sort of constructions and word classes in a different way and not to confuse form and function um, when you're saying what it is your Conlang is doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, we're going to have uh, a few different uh, references in the list. Uh, I will I will link to these... Um, to these chapters in morphosyntax, those probably will be good places to start. I read a couple of the, the 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 papers that were published in journals, but I think that's like if you really want to like read like the argument, because uh, this the those are mostly like Professor Croft uh, responding to other academics uh, and and outlining his his stuff. Whereas I think the 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 morphosyntax chapters, if I'm not wrong, is, are going to be a little bit more uh, like introductory and and just explaining what's what he's he the the basic thrust of things. Um, but that's all going to be in the show notes. Uh, does anybody have any like final things they want to share? Just just like one quick thing before we go. I already said mine. Okay. <laughs> I think I've said lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, thanks a lot for for coming on the show with us. Yes. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. I hope uh, I hope the con your conlanger friends will get something of interest out of this typological diversity. All right. Well, the with that, I'm going to say uh, thank you to uh, uh, to Bill and uh, thank you William too for for bringing Bill on the show and uh, to everyone else. I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Conlangery is supported by our listeners. Thank you to Margaret Ransdell Green, Bram Hill, Ezekiel Fordsmender, and all our patrons who support us at patreon.com slash conlangery. Conlangery is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike License. You are free to use or adapt our work for any non-commercial purpose as long as you credit Conlangery Podcast and release any derivative works under the same license. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our site was designed by Bianca Richards, and our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>